Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hello, everyone. I wanted to be able to say something before I introduce our guest for today. If you have a story that you want to be able to share that relates to the themes of this podcast, or if you know someone who's been wanting to share their story or share their research, please, please, please have them be in touch with us here at the show at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. A couple of people have actually already gotten in touch and their stories are fascinating. And I know there are thousands more out there with stories just as fascinating. So please get in touch if you want to be able to have this as a forum to let people know about what to watch out for and to let people know how you get through it. And so for today, we're going to hear part two of my conversation with Dr. Michelle Haslam. She is a clinical psychologist who became involved with the new Kadampa tradition in 2016, living in their meditation center in Northamptonshire, England. Michelle experienced indoctrination and spiritual abuse within the group and despite her training as a psychologist, came to believe that she should be destroying her ego instead of practicing self-care and self-compassion. Now Michelle produces materials that explain the process of indoctrination within Buddhist cultic groups. Michelle has since been a target of harassment via her workplace and character assassination from senior members of the group. And as a result, her workplaces now need to remain confidential. You can visit her website, though, at www.newkadampatraditionreport.org or go to her YouTube channel, Recovery from the New Kadampa Tradition. Here's part two of my conversation with Michelle. When something is called new and then tradition, I find that interesting. It, it, either it's a tradition or either it's from a traditional place, which would give it some sort of gravity and um, you, you have a feeling that it's connected to something that is true and um, that people have been trusting for thousands of years. But the fact that it's new means that it is its own um, organization with its own rules, its own guidelines. It's not connected to anything where there would be safeguards, where there would be standards of practice, where there would be expectations of certain kind of behavior. So it's like giving you this false sense of it being valid. Uh, I find that just very interesting, the name in and of itself. It's very confusing and contradictory. Um, they market themselves as modern Buddhism. They are not either of those things. A young person who goes along will find it very archaic, very stuck in its ways, unable to evolve. Um, they don't care about the environment. They don't care about recycling. They, they don't um, really do anything to help the wider community, partly because they believe that you should be able to help the world through your own mind, through the magical thinking but also because it's an organization that is hell-bent on expansion and, um, yeah, spreading the doctrine through building more centers and more temples. And there's been a, a strong history of financial abuse in order to achieve that aim. 
so um yeah it's it's not um modern in the way that mm. uh, a young person would find it modern um and it's not very easy to understand um i mean the texts are in english but it is not modern english and uh, it's quite poorly translated um and you know all other um streams of buddhism they don't consider the nkt dharma to be buddhism and the group certainly operates as a cult so it's really the the opposite of everything that it claims to be because apparently i haven't i don't consider myself a buddhist scholar it wasn't really part of my healing to try and fully understand what buddhism is supposed to be i went down the cultic studies routes so i found that much more interesting and helpful so i don't tend to comment one of the criticisms i get is that i don't make direct comparisons between what buddhism should be and how the nkt operate because that's just not my specialist area but what i'm always told by other people is that real buddhism if there is such a thing i don't even know if there is you would not be uh, such a fanatic to your teacher or the teachings because really that's attachment and there wouldn't be statues of the guru whilst he's still alive that's apparently considered quite inauspicious by um uh, other groups um they make gold statues of kel sangyatso and put his hair in the, in them and when i was involved you're just you're just told well you know it's not that he ordered us to make statues of him it's just that we wanted to do it because of what he represents to us but he must have um authorized that um you know so there are quite a few narcissistic warning signs around there's also like signs when you go in saying that um this is the only method for achieving happiness and that new kadampa tradition centers are the only centers for healing throughout the world yeah so there's there's quite a few warning signs like that really the term modern buddhism draws a lot of westerners in Sure. Well, it seems like it's something that would speak to people who uh, don't want something to be kind of old fashioned. They want something that's new and vibrant, different, current. Uh, and but new doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means this is this is a new organization, and so you need to do your research to find out if it's safe. Yeah, it means it's a new religious movement, right? Or a cult. Yes. I think also this idea of uh, putting his hair in this shrine, it was so interesting because it could be something that, that he thought of, or it could be something that one of the followers did one day and received so many accolades um, that then it became pro forma, then people wanted to do it too. Also still about the narcissism, you know, just to please this person and their ego and and it sounds like he was very clever at, as you're saying, at not making people feel like they had to do certain things and having them feel like they had come to it of their own free will, their own free mind, of their own volition. But that the, and, and for some people, they, they really like that because they like to be able to say, no, no, this was my decision. And then the leader also has this sort of plausible deniability because they didn't make you. But but they did, because you knew you couldn't not do it. You know, it's a very interesting thing. Yeah. So when I read the notes notes for teaching skills, notes on teaching skills by 
Neil Elliott, who um, was one of his initial entourage um, or heart disciple, it was very interesting because it says, be very careful not to give the impression that it's a recruitment drive. Um, and uh, it says that the aim of the NKT teacher is to drive the meaning of the text into the heart of the disciple. But at first, you just need to make them comfortable and give them a space where they feel accepted because people aren't, they're not used to that. Uh, but later, your mission is to drive the meaning, you know, into them. You know, it's quite a fault. When I read that, I was like, wow, that's actually quite forceful. Right. Yeah. So it's quite aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is like that. Like I, um, the admin director where I lived, she once told me that she uh, was preaching to teenagers and it was giving them anxiety. Um, she said that she was pointing at different areas of their body and saying that it didn't exist because they practice a lot of um, dissociating from the body, um, questioning, where is my body? Where am I? Where is the center of me? You know, am I my arm? Am I my, uh, am I my, or the emptiness of the eye? And she told me that she would do that to teenagers, um, her son's friends, and that it made them anxious and she once let out the most disturbing evil cackle and she said you have to start them on the path early wow. yeah because they believe that we all need to be practicing the dharma so that we all living beings can achieve enlightenment then there'll be no more suffering in the world so it's a really intense severe form of indoctrination because of the memorization of the text word for word which they repeat in their exams they're just supposed to write it all word for word in exams so there's no engagement with the text in a sort of critical way there's sometimes a discussion section in the teachings classes but really you're still told this is the ultimate truth and if you don't it then it's just because you've still got obstructions in your mind that need pacifying or because you don't have enough faith the question time is really kept to a minimum so it's a really intense severe indoctrination and they do believe that they do develop a really strong messiah complex so they they do believe that it's their um that the doctrine should be spread um everywhere and that they need a center in every city all over the world okay that's it taking over the world. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's it. It's good to have goals. So, I I know we're uh running low on time, but I wanted to to ask you if there was another story you wanted to share that you haven't had a chance to share yet that in, sort of encapsulates either your experience or something you want people to know and then I want you to be able to talk about the harassment. because uh, I think that that's that's such an important piece too, and is also such a sign of something um, being an unhealthy organization. And I think people don't realize while they're doing it for an organization, how much they're sort of tipping their hands, so to speak, how they're showing really that the organization is not a healthy one, because usually there should be um, uh, freedom of speech. People have the right to share their experience without worry, or they should if the organization is a healthy one. So anything else you wanted 
us to be able to know about the group or your experience and then to talk about the harassment would be really very powerful, I think. Yeah, I guess I think what's really important for Westerners to know is about how a lot of Buddhist groups actually practice dissociation. So, um, but that can actually feel good in the beginning. So as far as I'm aware, you know, to get a sort of diagnosis of uh, dissociative difficulty, it needs to be considered unpleasant and distressing for you. So a lot of people in the NKT, they wouldn't really say that it's distressing for them. They would say it's pleasant and that it's a sign of spiritual progress. Um, and when you're within the group, you're told that, uh, so things that uh, other people would consider symptoms of a mental illness would be spiritualized. So for example, um, they practice having conversations in their heads with Kelsan Gyatso and to visualize him to the point where they actually hallucinate him. And if they um, admit this within the group, they'll be told that it's wonderful and it's, it's spiritual. But obviously if they leave, um, it, that will be seen as a sign of, psycho of psychosis. Um, they say that they teach mindfulness and yet they do a lot of visualization mm. and that actually interferes with your ability to connect with reality as it's happening around you. If you're constantly visualizing Buddhas or um, making offerings in your head of beautiful flowers, the Buddhas to the, to the three jewels, then you're not actually in contact with what is going on around you, but um, that's considered virtuous and pure uh, and also with the dissociation people can appear very glassy-eyed they can it's difficult to interact with them um, but because they're in such a strong relationship with the leader um, and the teachings rather than each other that's they don't necessarily notice that um, but to an outsider um, they can appear, um, yeah, just very um, kind of blissed out, uh, but not in touch with reality. Um, but if you practice some of their practices often enough, you will be experiencing depersonalization and derealization and dissociation from the body. But of course, there is some benefit to that in the same way that someone who's had a lot of trauma would be dissociating in order to protect themselves from the pain. Mm -hmm. But if you have a history of trauma and you already experienced dissociation and then you get involved with a group like this, it will possibly teach you to do even more of it, but give it this spiritual narrative. Um, and so you're not practicing any grounding techniques. They don't practice mindfulness of the body at all. I'm told that it's not supposed to be like that in the Satipatthana Sutta. They do practice mindfulness of the body. You should be grounded in the body and you should understand who you are and your identity and yourself before mm -hmm. you aim to try to disconnect from that or to destroy it. Um, I, don't, I still don't think that um, dissociating from yourself is ever a good idea. Well, it happens naturally sometimes, but I don't think doing it intentionally is particularly a good idea in any case, but 
in the NKT, they don't practice anything that is grounding at all. Um, so, yeah, um, I'd say that is the key thing that I want people to know. They do not know what the risks are because they're told meditation will make you happy and um, meditation is always good. They don't screen people for mental health difficulties. They don't monitor people's mental states. Often therapy is discouraged. You'll just be told you need to be destroying your self-cherishing mind. Um, yeah, they believe in a in this self-cherishing mind that is the um, the root of all your suffering that you need to permanently destroy. Um, so if you say that you're having symptoms that um, are, are distressing, you'll be told that that's a good thing um, and you won't be given any support. Um, so if you're actually brave enough to disclose that you are suffering, because most people don't spontaneously report difficulties that they have in meditation because no one cares or that no one's asking or you're embarrassed or um you don't understand what's happening so you don't talk to anyone about it so that's really what I want people to know it's a very important thing it's something really to watch out for and I think you're right by saying that to a certain degree these things can be helpful and these things can be calming and it can help with trauma but then it reaches this point of crossing over this boundary where you lose the ability to self-protect, I think, which can create its, its own anxiety uh, for people who, who have left, who feel that they're floating, who uh, are not aware of what's happening to their body. They can be prone to being injured, to being abused and not react with the, with the same kinds of emotional states or with the same speed that makes them feel uh, just as vulnerable. So finding a place in the middle is always a good thing. And, and also being able to be in a group that is aware enough about the safeguards and the dangers where you can say, you know what, I, I do enjoy this meditative practice, but I am noticing the following things which are troubling. And then having somebody say to you, well, then you might want to kind of step back a bit and maybe only do this for a certain amount of time a day or maybe you need to talk to someone about some of these after effects, but really feel like you're being cared for instead of probably being told you need to do it more. Yeah, and there's no pastoral care at all, but um, I would say even if you don't, it, it, for me with the NKT in particular, it's not about doing them less, it's about not doing them at all because they do not understand trauma at all. They do not believe trauma exists. They do not believe that the body can be affected by your experiences. Um, they don't understand um, anxiety being uh, your body telling you that you're not actually really very safe. Um, so um, then they don't understand um, mental health at all, but they claim that they completely understand the mind. Now, this makes it highly dangerous. Um, because they're so confident that they understand why they believe in a mental continuum that passes from life to life and that if you maintain a positive state of mind in the moment that you die then you'll be reborn with a more fortunate rebirth so they do not understand mental health at all and there's more and more evidence coming out now about the importance of trauma sensitive meditation and mindfulness practices I would really recommend that people um, 
read Willoughby Britain's um, research uh, on varieties of experiences um, contemplated practices and um, that they read about potential adverse effects and that they know that this is serious um, for some people um, and it's it can be highly distressing um, and unfortunately only about 25 percent of studies on meditation and maybe it's mindful I can't remember if it's mindfulness or some of those include meditation of a different kind but apparently only about 25 percent of them according to Willoughby Britain have asked people about adverse effects in the first place so they haven't measured them or asked people so I think many more people are having these experiences than we actually know um, and also a lot of people who research meditation they are Buddhists who meditate and so there's a lot of confirmation bias John Kabat-Zinn for example he in his writing and research papers, he talks about the Buddha Dharma, the wish to spread the Buddha Dharma for every problem throughout the world. He says it's urgent, the world needs this now. You know, it's very evangelical. And there are lots of researchers who are publishing research in this kind of indoctrinated state. And um, I don't think this is acceptable. So, um, and I, the reason I, this worries me so much now is because I know that I was partially indoctrinated and I know that it really affected me. Um, I did come to believe that I should have less needs, that I should be working to, um, I didn't believe that I could permanently destroy my ego, but I thought I should have, you know, less of it and um, that that would be a virtuous thing to do. And that actually just fed into my childhood emotional neglect and made everything worse for me. But I can completely see how, especially if you've got um, some credentials as a um, practitioner and you're given um, a place where you can spread the Dharma or publish research um, that um, could potentially be um, dangerous. Mm. Well, dangerous is a strong word, but it could be very biased. Ah, biased. Right. Right. Okay. So now to get to the the harassment, which I'm so sorry you're dealing with. Uh, so tell me about what's happening and what has happened. Yeah, so um, first of all, I started making YouTube videos. At the time, I didn't know about... I knew that if you exposed a narcissist, they would try and gather evidence against you. But I didn't know enough about how cults operate yet and at that time. And I didn't know about a fair game in Scientology. You know, I was very naive. I wonder if I was kind of almost testing, like, surely it can't be that bad. Um, but when, you know, you start to see how they respond to you, then you know it's bad. So um, I started to receive threats on YouTube telling me I should have cameras outside my house. Um, they put on uh, automatic dislikes to dislike my videos the second they came online. When I called them out in it, on it in a video, they removed the automatic programs. Every time I called them out on something, they would stop doing it. Uh, it was very strange. Um, I then um, wrote a written analysis of um, my thoughts and also the feedback that I was receiving and the trolling that I was starting to receive. So people started telling me that it was all 
as you'd expect, that it was all in my mind, that I was mentally ill, that I deserved it through my karma, that I was blaming an external object instead of taking responsibility for my mental health issues. So I screenshotted all of this and I was compiling a written report. It was really interesting, but, you know, intense and overwhelming. And I'd actually made myself a target through YouTube. Um, so they knew that I was then writing this um, document. And then the day after it went viral, they emailed my workplace using a fake identity as a clinical psychologist, Dr. Robert Harrison who doesn't exist, uh, claiming that they were just concerned for my mental well-being and that I seemed to be having a nervous breakdown um, after the breakdown of a sexual relationship within a religious organisation and that I needed help. But it also subtly suggested that perhaps I'm not suitable for my job and maybe they want about that. So it was very clearly an attack on my reputation and my safety in order to... Um, mainly to discredit the report that I'd written but I think uh, if they managed to ruin me that would have been you know an added bonus for them. So what happened was um, this angered me so much and I was um, I'd got hold of the email so I actually shared it on social media to expose them because I was kind of in the abuse cycle at this point and um, the use of the fake identity was so hypocritical to me that I wanted the world to know um, and then um, unfortunately I broke the data protection policy at my workplace for the sharing of emails when I did that even though the email was not about a client and it was clearly an attack um, I technically I broke the rules and as I was a um, temporary member of staff and not um, a permanent member I had less rights so, um, and also by this point, I actually was very stressed and overwhelmed and um, yeah, really triggered physically by what was going on. So of course that's annoying because they want to character assassinate you as mentally unwell, but you kind of are by that point because it was kind of too early for me to be speaking up about all of it really, but I couldn't once I started to understand what had happened and what the group was really like, I felt complicit and I felt responsible as a clinical psychologist because I knew I would be taken more seriously than the other survivors who've just been told that they were mentally ill and they perhaps didn't have the language to describe what happened to them that I might. Um, so my testimony and my writing was a threat much more so than the other former members. So, um, yeah, so what, what they then did was they bought the URL in my name, drmichellehasm.com, and they wrote an entire website um, about uh, how I'm mentally ill. Um, they wrote about my childhood. Mm. They um, found out the name of my dead father and wrote that I was just traumatized uh, by the death of my father when I was a teenager and by how I reacted to the breakdown of the sexual relationship within the group and therefore there was nothing uh, wrong with the NKT. 
Meanwhile, they're still pretending to be this clinical psychologist who isn't going to care about any of that if they were actually concerned for my mental well-being. Um, they also tear apart the report that I wrote in great detail, um, which again, a clinical psychologist is not going to do that. So, um, and it was also, they made out that I was a perpetrator and that, that they were a victim of me. Um, so it was DARVO, deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. So this was kind of pathetic, but highly pathological to see the extent that they went to. They really, because they'd had some time to gather some evidence against me, uh, they really went to an alarming extent um, to do that. So um, when I discovered this website, I exposed it. And so it was getting a fair bit of attention. And of course, it just makes them look even more culty. Um, a former member who I um, speak to now and then said that they couldn't, even if they'd have sat down and, and had a meeting and say, what is the most culty thing we could do right now to respond? Uh, it's like they actually did that. Um, yeah, it makes the group look much worse than what the person that the website's about. They have done similar things like this in the past, but it's not been a whole website before. It's maybe been a picture that's like pop propaganda about someone's mental health state. Um, yeah, so that's just recently come down after B. Schofield, five days after B. Schofield released an article about the NKT where she linked to the website it was then taken down. So I think they started to realize that it was getting too much attention and that um, maybe they started to see that the IP addresses of people looking at it were organizations like government organizations or schools and that. So um, yeah, so it's been taken down, but I have screenshots of it all and we all remember that it happened, so. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. And can you explain who B. Schofield is? And then I want to respond to the story that you just told me. Yeah. Um, so B. Schofield is a journalist that writes about cultic abuse and um, cults. And um, yeah, so she wrote an article that came out in must have been early February. Yeah. Uh, where she brought all the key issues together. So that was including the abuse against me so that was really helpful it's very difficult to get it covered in the mainstream media um you know we're often told that the attacks on me are not sufficient evidence to protect them from libel um and that they need more but the trouble is, is that most people are too afraid because one of the unfortunate side effects of the attacks on me is that it has shown people that they are in danger and um, I wouldn't encourage people, particularly um, unless they are very safe, very well and very well supported to um, expose things like that. So unfortunately, lots of it is not in the public domain yet. So we don't have an awful lot of evidence that people are feeling safe enough to share. So actually, I would say that the NKT is the most dangerous so-called Buddhist group in the world, but there is still not as much that has been exposed about them compared to other groups. Okay, so, right. I mean, the, I hear about new groups 
every day. I was just actually telling someone yesterday, I got a call from a number of families saying, you know, can you help me with my child who's gotten involved in this and has gotten involved in that? And for doing this for 29 years, almost every day I hear about a new group. And it's not so much that it's um, completely different from other groups. It just goes by a different name or it uses the teachings. It's often kind of a um, a combo platter of a lot of different kinds of groups and, and uh, philosophies and methods of, you know, um, spiritual practice and control. But I think what I find is that when there is such a, unfortunately, well-organized attack on certain people who, who are just saying, this is what I think. And this is what I went through, then it shows how worried they are about having their information exposed. And hopefully, then the public, hopefully, gets the message that they have a lot to hide. Um, because if they didn't, you could say whatever you wanted. Um, and so it just it proves so many points about them and not about you. Uh, but I know that that you have needed to soldier on through this and it's not easy and it's not easy to deal with it in different areas of your life too if you have to deal with it at your workplace etc um and that you have to deal with um people either asking you about it or wondering about you etc but i think well, what I value in this story of yours is that even though it has made some people worried uh, about coming forward, it has also uh, probably made people feel empowered that they could potentially do the same thing, that if they came forward, they would not be a lone voice, and that there are also people who have experienced what they've experienced. And so then they don't feel so isolated. There's such a power in it. Uh, but usually there is this sort of, unfortunately, this self-sacrificial piece, like it has been for you. You know, it's very, it's very hard, even though I know, and I'm sure there have been some positives that you've gotten from it, but it's hard to walk through that fire. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I just had no idea what I was getting myself into. I just felt compelled because I couldn't hold it in anymore. You know, I'm, I knew that I was supposed to be advocating for things that were therapeutic and beneficial for people's mental health. And then I came to realize that I was involved in something really sick and toxic. So I just couldn't live with myself. You know, I, when I started to read testimonies, I had like urges to bang my, my head against walls. Um, I'm like, I wanted like an exorcism or something. I, and I've never been in that kind of state in my whole life. So um, for me, it's kind of been important, I think, to integrate those different parts of me. Um, it's been really amazing. Like you say, there are some positives. I don't use their spiritual teachings to remind myself that there are positives in everything. I use my own version. So I've managed to claim some things back for myself that were robbed of me for a little while because anything that reminded me of their teachings, I couldn't practice. Even techniques from cognitive behavioral therapy or any other kind of meditation, I couldn't do any of it because it just reminded me of them. And that's, this is really common for former members. Any kind of positive thinking, you feel invalidated because that's what the group were doing. 
um because it's like a, a pathological positive thinking it's a it's a pathological happiness cult basically um so um yeah they're completely obsessed with happiness um in quite a childlike way so um yeah but i i think i have to to be able to have a voice and although there's been consequences on my health and my finances it's been kind of the i think the only way for me perhaps not for other people for other people um remaining quiet for the rest of their lives could be just as fine for them but for me personally um i had to be able to say hey this happened to me and i was i was affected by it psychologically even though i'm a psychologist and um that has helped other people like you say to say oh well actually if that happened to her and maybe I'm not so stupid. Maybe it wasn't just that I was like, you know, um, you know, I should have seen all the warning signs and all that because this can happen to anyone. Um, we're all much more vulnerable than we realize. And um, there's a group out there that would suit every one of us um, that could recruit us if we were in a period of transition in our lives or um, it was just, the right moment so um yeah um overall I, I don't have any have any regrets yeah I just couldn't have been any any other way really yeah yeah I know I know the feeling um uh you know <laughs> uh so uh we are of uh like mind and like determination in in that way uh so as we finish up can you let people know where they can find you, where they could find some of, you, you know, your channel, the information that you've posted um, so they can be well-informed. Yeah, sure. So um, our website is uh, newkadampatraditionreport.org and um, the YouTube is Recovery from the New Kadampa Tradition. I have been told by members of other Buddhist groups or so-called Buddhist groups that they do find the, the materials relevant to them, even though the group is slightly different. Um, as I say, the mechanisms in um, the gaslighting and um, crazy wisdom is very—they're very similar across um, these groups. Right. There's also um, a website by Miriam Anders, who I—I I can't remember the url of her website right now but she also um has a website supporting uh with some good resources for people who have had traumatic experiences um, within similar groups and tenzin pelior uh, has his buddhism controversies website which is also full of um useful information about abuse in buddhism and um the the controversies around each particular group um, that's been exposed in the media so far. Um, so those are the main resources that come to mind at the moment. Okay. So Michelle, thank you. Thank you not only for your time today, but for taking your experience and trying to understand it, encapsulate it, put words to it so that it could be shared. And it can be used for education, for prevention, uh, for awareness, and that you had to, unfortunately, go through so much 
uh, that was, I'm sure, a shock to the system, but that you're still out there with the information and the information will always exist out there too. So people need to do that research and also that you're offering people other sources of the information, very non-culty of you, right? <laughs> exactly, right. right. Oh, and I have to say, I just remembered that one of the things that really helped me, because uh, I actually cult hopped from the NKT to Tree Ratna, which is a little bit less culty, but still culty, um, because I didn't realize that I was still partially indoctrinated and I was looking for a new community that was less abusive. And it was somewhat less abusive, but there was still a lot of whitewashing of sexual abuse and more subtle psychological manipulation. One of the things that helped me a lot was I listened to a podcast of yours with Matthew Remsky. Mm -hmm. And I found that like um, very, not just informative, but very um, therapeutic. And um, I really recommend his book as well, Practice and Always Coming. So other sources of information around there's no one healing method from this group or any other group um and yeah none of us are the guru but it's brilliant to be able to link to everything that's out there and there's a growing amount of stuff out there yeah. and it's really it's actually a really exciting time for the, the me too movement has now started to explode within buddhism and um you know, lots of people are making online testimonies or their own videos to say, hey, um, this happened to me and this actually was abuse. So important. So empowered. It's it's time. It's time for this to be happening. Um, OK, so thank you. And thank you for your time. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Absolute pleasure, Rachel. Thank you for your time as well. My pleasure. One more thing before you go. I am so glad you got to hear the second part of my conversation with Dr. Michelle Haslump. These conversations are so important. You get to hear from somebody who is a professional, someone who has studied these issues from a psychological perspective and sociological perspective, and has also lived it herself. And I wish her well with all of the ongoing harassment that she is getting. And I wish myself well with the harassment I'll probably be getting from this episode when it airs. Anyway, what I do want to be able to talk about is something that she mentioned, which is the bystander effect. A lot of people I speak with who have been involved in situations where they were being controlled have talked about how they felt that their hands were tied behind their backs. They couldn't help a family member who was being berated or abused. They couldn't help a loved one of any sort. They couldn't help a friend. They couldn't help a child. They couldn't prevent bad things from happening. And they learned to just stand idly by. And for some people, that is so contrary to their conscience that they're left feeling the guilt and shame of that, even though the system promoted it. People will then ask themselves, why didn't I act? Why didn't I step in? Why didn't I speak up? Why was I so passive? Maybe I was raised that way here, or maybe I had been more active, but now I was being encouraged to be passive. I want to understand what got me to this place. 
And also, how did I become too afraid to do something, to say something? Sometimes the bystander effect is tied in with gaslighting because the passivity can come from you being convinced of things that are just not true. Like that someone else being berated or mistreated or neglected or abused is going through that for their own benefit. Like a group I dealt with years ago that believed that people were being abused, even children, because that was their spiritual quote-unquote correction from wrongdoings in a past life. So people were encouraged not to intercede or protect or report or even feel bad. And it didn't trigger the same emotional impact it should and certainly didn't motivate people to action because you felt that you were interfering with these people's spiritual development and betterment if you got involved. There is something called social identity theory. And from the literature, it says, the social identity theory posits that the self is a complex system made up primarily of the concept of membership or non-membership in various social groups. And these groups have various moral and behavioral values and norms. And the individual's actions depend on which group ideals or philosophy or behaviors is most enforced or ingrained at the time of the action. And also, I think, it's based upon who's watching at the time. That actually is something that lends itself a lot to the reason that people either acted or they stood idly by, depending upon who was watching them and how they knew that person was going to react to them getting involved or being passive. The leader, the controller, the henchman of the leader, there are so many of those in groups like this. Every cult has its own form of police, its own group enforcers, and they're very motivational in driving people to behave a certain way so they do not stand out or get themselves in the hot seat in the group so that they're the ones being abused the next time. This influence is evidenced by findings that when the stated purpose and values of a group changes at the whim of the leader, the values and motives of its members also change. Crowds are an amalgam of individuals, all of whom belong to various overlapping groups. However, if the crowd is primarily related to some identifiable group, which is what I talk about a lot in a lot of the situations that we deal with on this show, then the values or teachings of that group or its leader will dictate the crowd's action. The bystander effect also happens when you talk about bullying. I have had this experience just being a school counselor for so many years. There are many people who have been bullied who have talked about how devastating it is to be knocked down to the ground and to look up and see people doing nothing and to look around and see people not caring or walking uncomfortably away. But sometimes people are passive because they have experienced being mistreated when they've interceded and they don't want to put themselves in danger. So it's not that they don't care about you. 
they're trying to protect themselves. It's an important, actually, it's an important thing to remember. The bystander effect also happens when people who know something wrong is happening next door, even in the other room, in their home. Often people are encouraged by society to not get involved. No, 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 don't get involved. Just keep driving by. Just keep walking by. And sometimes people are guided by their own anxiety to not get involved because of the potential danger or emotional messiness. Either way, the after effect is that for some people, they feel relieved that they didn't get involved. But more often, people feel guilty in retrospect. And they have a conscience that torments them for a very long time and sometimes forever because they know there was something they could have potentially done. And even if their attempts to help would not have been successful in the end, still, they would have gotten the message across to the person who is being singled out or hurt that at least someone cared enough to try. If it doesn't put you in danger of bodily harm, please remember that message. Please be the one. Be the one who shows someone they matter enough for you to try and step in and remind them that they are not alone in this world. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.